Case File Number 7.1 Getting the Soviet Blocks to Fit Observed by Agent Hawthorne Agent Crenshaw Still working on this Gibson thing No, Chief y- You gotta give me more time Have you even listened to the recordings? It's like an encyclopedia of this hacker stuff. One of them just keeps going on and on about everything that ever went wrong on the internet. No, nobody knows this kind of crap. He's obviously up to no good. Yeah, the one called Hackalope. No, how is it not illegal? The information is dangerous. And and the other one, the other one, Ymir. He's always going on about everything the CIA and FBI did wrong. All the wiretap stuff, all the crazy projects. How does he know? We already know he's infiltrated NASA, and I am this close to catching him skipping leg day. Now just ask yourself, Chief, what would J. Edgar Hoover do? Chief, all I need is more time. Sooner or later they're going to slip up and I will catch them. Hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subdirector of the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. All right, so pop quiz. I'm going to n- throw out some names here and tell me if anything springs to mind. Orange Ricky, Blue Ricky, Cleveland Z, Rhode Island Z, Tiwi, Smash Boy, and of course there's Hero. Are those nicknames for block configurations in Tetris? They are. Yep. Each block has a uh, a name, and I I mean, you know which one's here, all right? That would be the four in a row. Yes, exactly. Because <laughs> yeah. everybody's waiting for a hero. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I so, thought it could be a reference to the sandwich. Ooh, that is that is actually possible. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Today, I'm uh, going to be talking about uh, Tetris. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure, probably most of our listeners have play this game god i hope they have i don't know though some people have never played tetris before i Um, figure if they can download a podcast they've seen tetris there's like this minimum level of technical exposure yeah that 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 is expect that is true that is true and so i'm gonna go into a lot of like the history of tetris um how it came to be and the weirdness of it because it happened during the cold war you know there's no cia intervention in the story none that i could find anyways who knows but it is kind of like just this weird Cold War sort of story with a little bit of like spy stuff going on. Well, I can say this with all the confidence I can exert. Somebody from the CIA has played Tetris. That is very true. Yes. It all is based on the game uh, Pentamonos. I think it's a, a game where you, you take basic shapes and rearrange them as this black grid. I think it's based on like uh, based around like genetic modification. Pentagrams? Pentagrams? Okay. It, there's a thing of a set of triangles and square and a square and I, some rectangles that was a big like thing about shape familiarization that w- went around in elementary school. When oh, no, no. Around. Okay. No, I don't, I don't think I ever played that. But yeah, no. Um, yeah, these are all, I think they're five, five pieces, uh, six pieces. Mm. Okay. And, and uh, Alexei uh, Pajanov um, is the creator of Tetris itself. And at the time, he was um, hired by the uh, Russian Academy of Science, and they were just testing the capabilities of the Electronica 60 computer that had just come out for them. 
And so they had all these guys just basically like building games and building other things just to test how well this computer could do. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty boring at first because he he literally just lifted the game and put it into um, computer game format. He broke it down down to four pieces, um, basically mm-hmm. this like safe space on the computer. Yeah. And in order to make it a little bit more hectic, he he narrowed the playing field kind of to the middle of the screen, and you know because it is it's more of a wide um, square box that you play uh, Pentanomos in. Um, okay. So he kind of made it you know what the typical Tetris field is now. Mm-hmm. And after that, there was a new problem. Um, if you failed to finish a row, or if you finished a row, it didn't matter. That row just stayed there. Yeah. And so that was that was kind of boring. So he put took it a step further to what we know now that Tetris does is when you complete a row, it vanishes. And that immediately made the game crazy addictive uh, to people. <laughs> and the, the name itself, Tetris, comes from Tetra, meaning four, and then uh, Pajanov's favorite sport, tennis. Just threw them both together. And this game initially only works for the Electronica 60. And that was a super outdated computer. Not a lot of people were using that. And it really just kind of gained a cult following at the Russian Academy of Science where the Electronica 60s were and where Pajanov worked. Mm-hmm. Um, he wanted to expand it to more of an audience to see how many people would enjoy his game. And that required reprogramming the game for the IBM PC. Yeah. So for that, he turned to uh, Vadim Gerasimov. And he was a 16-year-old student working a summer job at the office. And it only took Vadim about a few weeks to basically add color to the shapes and the ability to save your high score. And I think he also added sound to the game as well. Mm-hmm. And from here, the game basically just spread like wildfire. At one point, everyone in the Soviet Union who had a PC basically had Tetris on it and was playing it. So what you're saying is this is the first PC to console port. Well, this this was this, these were all still uh, on PCs, right? But we know that this came went that the Tetris eventually went to console. Mm-hmm. Yes, so yes. it was on the PC first, and then it went to console. So it may very well have been the first PC to console port. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, how many how many made the jump from PC to console? That that did lead to like I'll get into it a little bit, but that led to some uh, very weird licensing and uh, I'm agreement sure it issues. Did. Uh, the, <laughs> I don't know for a fact. I don't have enough of a detailed memory of of the history there. But basically, the IBM 360 series was the supercomputer, the first supercomputer that saw widespread use in cloning. Mm. And the early IB, the early um, Soviet computers ended up being clones of the IBM 360. So that Electronica 60 may very well have been one of the derivative clones of oh, the okay. original IBM uh, 360 mainframes. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Like, I know those things happened. I just don't know that computer is one of the 360 lineage. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Pajanov um, gave one copy of the game to a friend who worked at the Moscow Medical Center, and he was a clinical psychologist. Uh, he mm-hmm. immediately recognized the dopamine hit the game was giving to its users, and he made copies and handed them out to all of his employees, and it suddenly took off way faster than he anticipated. Uh, he eventually removed all copies because it was interfering with the work going on, but eventually it found its way back, and he just kind of rolled with it. And in fact, he decided that this game would actually be a really good way to study addiction and had a two-player version created by uh, Pajanov and uh, Gerasimov. I find this interesting that, A, very early you have research into video game addiction. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. became a thing 
that people started talking about in like the 2000s in my experience but like yes. apparently it was straight off the bat with tetris in what was this the late 70s or the early 80s uh this was like uh early to mid 80s yeah it's interesting to me how like i didn't realize it but there was so much of the things that we realized about things that happened in video games later mm-hmm. on that that tetris uh, uh snowballed and, and that brings me to my second thing which was when people we start getting people to start using windows in way back in the dark ages of pcs in in like the office environment some of the trainers would say well if you aren't comfortable with using a mouse you could try some of the games like solitaire or minesweeper to practice but everybody got addicted and everybody oh. and, and, they, and they'd be like oh they said to play it <laughs> that's great yeah humans humans have monkey brains yes like I'm, I'm reading a book, and we will be doing a podcast episode eventually, kind of based on the book of social about social media. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just that dopamine hit for like MMOs, um, phone mm-hmm. games, social media. It's all the same. It's all you know. It takes advantage of our ancient monkey brains and that like you know certain needs and everything like that. They're so good at hitting your mm-hmm. your your feedback mechanisms. Your your um in your brain that it's not reality it's just super reality it gives you a greater feedback than regular reality does they've engineered engagement so that it's hitting you it's re-upping your 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 hit before you can get bored of it before you disengage which exactly is, which makes like dealing with the real world more difficult <laughs> yeah 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 like you know they they hire psychologists they have them on staff much like candy manufacturers um soft drinks all of those have you know psychologists and chemists and everything that they hire to make it as addictive as possible within legal limits exactly (laughs) (laughs) so anyways as it was spreading uh across the soviet union you know there was no money to be made off this game uh ideas were owned by the state Mm -hmm. so the very concept of selling software as a product was unfamiliar to Pashinov. he didn't know what to even do about that uh the game was basically just copied to floppy disk and word of mouth and you know shared around and everything like that Mm-hmm. And you know, so that, that that's one key point. If you're working on a kind of project of your own, eventually, like you decide, like, oh, this like this could take off. This could be something of its own right. Like keeping in mind basically where you developed that product, like yeah. where you wrote that code. Like if you if you're writing it on a company computer, if you're writing it like during work hours and stuff like that, your company mm-hmm. basically has a legal right to claim that. Yeah. I've even seen some very aggressive uh, um, intellectual property agreements that say mm-hmm. we own everything you think of, even when you're not at work. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of very gray area and wiggle room and stuff like that. And, you know, this is kind of one of those early cases, but also, you know, just kind of part of the Soviet Union mindset mm-hmm. as well. Um, yeah. And eventually Pajanov heard a rumor that the game had made its way across the borders and to the Eastern Bloc countries. Uh, it had been getting smuggled um, across the border from uh, Russia into neighboring Hungary. Because nothing was ever smuggled between states in the Soviet Union. Exactly. <laughs> so in 86, he got a message from a man named Robert Stein, and he was a salesman from a British Andromeda Software Company that was based out of Hungary. Uh, mm-hmm. He himself was a Hungarian. So Stein wanted to secure the rights to sell it as a computer game in the West. And he offered a good chunk of change in advance to Pajanov. Um, he sent him a, um, what was it, Telex, um, you know, before fax. Yeah. And, you know, basically just, you know, told him, you know, he wanted the rights and everything. The game was a hit and he wanted to basically like sell it to um, 
you know, the rest of the world. Pajanov, uh, you know, basically said, quote, you know, my English was very bad at the time. So I put together some kind of positive answer saying we were very glad to receive the proposal and that some agreement could be made. You know, Pajanov knew that dealing with the West could land him directly in jail. Do not pass that. Go. Do not pass. Uh, do not collect uh, 200 Russian monies. Rubles. Yeah, rubles. rubles. <laughs> so he started to look into how he could sell the rights to uh, Tetris through the state. Uh, during the time, however, Stein took Pajanov's response as a green light and started producing the game. <laughs> At a certain point, Academy Soft came in on the Russian side to negotiate all this going on. You know, in the meantime, Stein had approached two companies. Uh, I think it was Mirosoft and uh, Spectrum Holobyte about publishing the game. And kind of sold them on the idea that they had the rights. You know, they set off to try to like start making the game and everything like that. And all the while, Academy Soft was telling Stein that only the IBM PC rights were the ones available. And Stein mm-hmm. agreed to that. So Stein was getting stonewalled by the Russians, and he never actually had a signature to make it official that he had the rights to allow Mirosoft and Holobyte to publish these uh, titles. Okay. So... This would be the first Russian game given to the West. So the marketing for this game took hold of that and just ran with, you know, making this mysterious game from, you know, behind the curtain, what the Russians are playing. Like, ooh, you know, take take a peek, take a gander. In Soviet Russia, game plays you! Exactly. They even had Reagan and Gorbachev impersonators showing off the game at trade shows uh, before its launch. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> mm-hmm. So just as they were preparing for the launch, um, Stein got a message from the Soviet organization ELORC, uh, which is short for the Electron, Electron Org Technica. And they oversaw the software and hardware exports um, for all of Russia. And they were notifying him that uh, the rights had never been officially granted to him. Mm-hmm. So Stein hopped on a plane, flew to Russia. And during a trip, he met with uh, Pajanov and um, the uh, ELORG and you know, talked about all of this, and this had uh, this had come about originally that Pashinov had been uh, met with one of the Elorg representatives, um, and that you know they were questioning about an AI that he was working on everything, and he happened to just mention Tetris to them, mm-hmm. um, and the Academy Soft was dealing with the rights, and Elorg flipped a gasket. Um, they were shocked by this. They demanded all the paperwork be handed over to them. They were like, what the hell? Like Academy Soft doesn't have the right to, you know, negotiate any of this. That's that's our domain. So when Stein arrived, you know, Stein basically said that he viewed it as an interrogation. Uh, he didn't even <laughs> know Elorg existed and cited, uh, you know, he basically told them like, hey, we're this close to launch. If you pull it, it's going to be embarrassing to you guys. Um, so let me run with it. And so in 1988, Tetris was released with an official agreement having been uh, reached between Stein and Elorg. Uh, we'll go more into kind of how that agreement was uh, shaped and, you know, kind of the loose wording like, there. I'm waiting for you to tell <laughs> me about that or <laughs> the agreement because it's like, oh, well, there's bargaining power on both sides. I thought that mm-hmm. it would be all on the Russian side. And it's like, well, how did this ever happen? But oh, yeah. no, no, we already built this up. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So, you know, the game was released in the U.S. and sold 100,000 copies in its first year. You know, it was a major hit. Like, everyone, everyone mm-hmm. loves freaking Tetris. Yes. Some reviews even kind of speculated that Tetris had actually been made by the Soviets in a plot to lower work productivity in the United <laughs> States. That that sounds like exactly the kind of conspiracy theory that would have been gone. But, I mean, just like we were talking about, 
if it was possible to just say, aha, I'm going to make something super addictive and just produce it, the American video game manufacturers would have already done it. Exactly. I mean, you know, this kind of <laughs> goes hand in hand with TikTok and, you know, China being like, ah, here's this fun little thing, you know, go ahead and play it. We would have done that to ourselves mm-hmm. if somebody would have had the idea. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, there was, there was even a boss key programmed into Tetris. So you could hit oh. a key to blank your screen, you know, in case your boss was walking around the cubes. I knew about it first and foremost as an NES game mm-hmm. and on the original Nintendo Entertainment System. I didn't realize that it came to the PC first. Yeah. I'm a little surprised about that because mm-hmm. we had PCs. My brother and I were late to the game on 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 getting an NES. We had a PC before we had an NES, and we were somewhat active shareware users at the time. So right, I was like, right. the fact that it never hit me that that Tetris was available for the PC mm-hmm. astounds me. Yeah, yeah. My first experience with Tetris was, you know, just the Game Boy. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so that agreement between Stein and Elwerg, um, Stein interpreted it as basically he now had console rights, uh, but not arcade rights. You know, Elwerg mm-hmm. had explicitly said, you don't have the arcade rights. But in this agreement, it basically said that Stein had rights for PC and any computer-like uh, devices. Mm-hmm. And so that that will come into play in a little a little bit later on, but Stein took that and assured Microsoft and Holobyte, you know, he had all the rights, like arcade rights were upcoming, console rights were good, everything like that. Mm-hmm. Now enter uh, it's a me Nintendo. During a showroom demo, Hank Rogers, he was the owner of Bulletproof Software um, Publishing, and he encountered Tetris for the first time. I, he was uh, he was sitting there at this this demo, um, and what struck him as you know, interesting about Tetris was how quiet the game was. Um, all the other games were, you know, graphically exciting, um, like lots of sounds, everything going on. Uh, but Tetris was just this different thing to him. And, you know, it to him, it, quote, struck some basic chord. He couldn't stop playing it. Mm-hmm. And Hank had gotten his, his start when he learned the president of Nintendo enjoyed the game Go. Mm-hmm. And he basically just set up a meeting with him, pitched the making of Go into a game. Um, and then from there, basically just, you know, jumped into basically being an official licensee and publisher for Nintendo because, you know, he made this game, the president loved it, you know, boom, everything's, everything's good. I'm interested in that, in that game because mm-hmm. Go was famously difficult to AIify. Mm, yeah. A game at the console era that was actually a game of Go that, that Go players would find entertaining. Mm-hmm. I find that hard to pick to picture. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I'm curious what it looked like originally. So Rogers signed up to publish Tetris in Japan, but he was greeted with a twist. The rights to the arcade sales in Japan had already been sold, and those were to Atari, who was publishing under their um, Tengen label, mm-hmm. which which I, I vaguely remember having like old Nintendo uh, NES games with the Tengen uh, brand stuck on them. I can picture the logo in my head mm-hmm. i've absolutely seen it i couldn't yeah. tell you which games it was part of but i've absolutely seen it yeah yeah so rogers coughed up three hundred thousand to atari but he eventually got console rights in japan and it didn't sell too well in japan so what rogers did was he contacted the nintendo president and tried to get him to push the game more so the president of nintendo uh took the game 
And I thought it was fairly interesting. And he passed it down to one of his designers, uh, that being Shirgiro Miyamoto. Mm-hmm. Who do you recognize that name? The last name is pretty common. Mm-hmm. I definitely heard it, but I he's the the creator of Mario, Zelda, like basically okay. all of Nintendo's so, main life. Yeah, huge, huge dude, like one of the top game designers. You can tell I'm not as big a video gamer <laughs> as I might have been. So uh Miyamoto confirmed. Uh, that it was a good game. And when the president asked how he knew, he was like, because uh, all of your office staff are playing it. Your secretary, every, everyone's playing it. It's good. Like, push it. So that, that was all he needed. Um, so yeah. he started pushing the game. So one of the problems, though, was uh, Elorg wasn't getting paid. Somewhere in this weird tangled licensing web of all the stuff going on, uh, Elorg hasn't received a dime for anything. And this was uh, causing an issue. So now every major player started to converge on Moscow to try to sort out what was going on because, you know, there were millions at stake here. Yeah. So Hank Rogers flew to Moscow um, as well, uh, though the kicker was he was not there on a business visa. He went with it on a tourist visa, which is a major no-no. <laughs> yeah, that's that's it. Oops. In Soviet Russia, where the KGB, yeah. well, is the KGB. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Rogers, when he landed, he had no idea where he was going to, where he even going. So he he tried to play go with some locals, um, you know, to figure out where Elorg even was. And when he found out where it was through word of mouth, he just walked in and busily asked the front desk, like, "Hey, I'm here to negotiate about like the Tetris rights." And the Russians were like, "Wait, what?" So Nikolai Belikov, who was the head of Elorg mm-hmm. uh, at this time, he came out to meet Rogers. Um, and basically asked him, like, who the hell are you? And Rogers gave him a copy of Tetris on the Famicom. And Belikov looked at it um, and basically, like, what the hell is this? Like, mm-hmm. no one has the rights for counsel uh, for Tetris. Um, and Rogers was like, yeah, we're like the largest publisher of Tetris for uh, councils right now. Uh, <laughs> so there was, there was a lot of confusion there. Belkov was presented with this weird chain of rights um, and stated that uh, only Andromeda had ever been allowed rights to the game. You know, he sat down and kind of went through all this paperwork and everything like that. And, you know, like he looked at it, saw like this uh, Atari Tengen. He was like, I don't even know who the hell Tengen is. Like, what is what is going on here? And Rogers was subjected to a two hour long interview with KGB personnel, lawyers, uh, businessmen, all just kind of going over the Tetris copyright issues and everything like that. And eventually Rogers phoned in on one line of the original agreement with Andromeda that stated that Stein had the rights to port Tetris to, quote, different types of computers. Basically, the, the key point that was like, oh, this dude, okay, this, this is how it's going down. So uh, Belikov asked Rogers, you know, when are you going to be back in Russia so we can figure out who's going to have the rights and everything like that. And Rogers told him point blank. He's like, uh, I'm leaving either with the deal or no deal. I'm not, I'm not coming back to Russia. Um, so either, you know, you give me the deal or we don't have anything going on. And during all these meetings with Rogers, Pashinov was there. Mm-hmm. And he liked Rogers. Rogers had been a developer before he was a businessman and a publisher and everything like that. And the two became friends, hit it off, um, you know, went out for drinks um, and just talked about like the future of Tetris and like everything going on. Mm-hmm. So now it came down to Elorg to embrace capitalism in their dealings with Stein and the others. <laughs> So the first thing Belikov did was when Stein came in to greet him, he demanded late payments from Stein and said, no, no negotiations uh, until you pay us. Stein agreed to the new proposal, paperwork that he was handed, took it back to his hotel room, looked over and came back. But he missed some parts that Belikov had snuck in. 
Oh. One was Belkov had defined a computer as consisting of a processor, monitor, disk drives, keyboard, and operating system. And this was backdated to strip away all of Stein's rights that he thought he owned. Oh. So he had already signed that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He had already signed it. He just missed that. This is why you do not negotiate without a lawyer present. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yes. He, he signed in everything and, you know, he you know, during an interview said that like he left it like feeling really good. You know, went back home and was like, yeah, like we got it in the bag, everything. Not realizing Belikov had, you know, just turned the tables. So Kevin Maxwell was the next one to meet with Belikov. Um, and he basically walked in and Belikov just pulled out the Famicom game and asked him, you know, what is this? And Kevin Maxwell, uh, he was the son of um, Robert Maxwell, I think it was. The physicist? Robert, this one, Robert Maxwell, was a businessman. Um, okay. Might have been business as well. But it would be the top line of his resume. If yeah, yeah. Okay. That, Maxwell I don't think. that I'm thinking of. Mm. Um, yeah. He, so Kevin was the son, kind of, you know, was sent to do this job, looked at the Famicom game, was like, oh, it must be like a pirate game. And that immediately let Belikov know that this guy had no idea what the hell was going on with Tetris yeah. or anything. Um, and basically, like, confirmed to him that no one had rights to the console game. So ultimately, Rogers used his charm to get the handheld rights um, and also potentially win the console rights to Tetris. Uh, Belkov kind of hinted towards him that, like, hey, you should make us an offer for the console rights. He was dealing with Maxwell and Stein. And yeah. Yeah, I, I think he just he liked Rogers more and kind of saw more of an opportunity there too, probably to make some money. It might have been, hey, this guy is much is more willing to commit to something mm-hmm. like this without as much diligence. <laughs> yeah. Oh, actually, I, I forgot a point. I didn't put it in my notes, um, but some of the sources. Rogers had also basically told them, like, hey, I'm not going to nickel and dime you on percentages here. We will pay you a flat fee for every single one that we sell. Mm-hmm. And also, we can make the cartridges here in Russia. Oh, that was very sure negotiating on his part. Uh, that's that's definitely <clears throat> a thing that would uh, appeal to the Soviets because yeah. national pride and tech transfer and all of that fun. Yeah. And so Rogers knew Nintendo would be crazy interested in all of this. So he told Belikov to give him three weeks um, and then left. Mm-hmm. Went, had a meeting with uh, Nintendo's president. Uh, I forget his first name, but last name was Lincoln. Um, and Nintendo immediately was like, yeah, no, we want this. Like, this, this will make us millions. Also, this will stick it to Atari. Because Atari and Nintendo were fighting at this time. Um, There was a lot of like things going on with uh, licensing issues between the two. Atari was a publisher for them. And Atari had started publishing unlicensed games for Nintendo under the Tengen label, including Mm -hmm. Tetris. um, And had sued Nintendo for, you know, what they thought was breach of contract. So, you know, this was just icing on the cake to like get this pulled out from Atari. So Nintendo came back and they offered $5 million straight up for this game. Crap load of money back then. Yeah. And so in order to do that, because it was so much money, Nintendo representatives had to fly in secret to Russia uh, to sign the paperwork. They told everyone, you know, they were basically uh, just like flying to Japan for like, you know, a business trip or something like that and <laughs> went into Russia instead. Uh, they also like, so like one, they didn't want anyone to know about it because if Atari caught wind, they might try to jeopardize the entire thing. Yeah. And Nintendo, like during these uh negotiations had like asked like they were like oh like we're even interested in like giving royalty payments to Pajanov uh which Belikov just kind of scoffed at uh saying it was inappropriate um all the rights to the game belong to the state 
you know, since yeah. it was made while he was working. Of course he was going to say that. Mm-hmm. So th- this was a huge deal because millions were on the line. Um, in fact, Robert Maxwell, he attempted to appeal by directly going to uh, Gorbachev. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, his company had deep, deep ties with the Russian government. In fact, they had the Russian government actually come in and start searching the files of Belikov. Uh, Belikov just stood his ground and was like, no, like I, this is ironclad. Like I did everything on the up and up. Mm-hmm. This is good. And they, they didn't find anything. Um, Which is kind of amazing because the rep would be that they would find something if they wanted to find something. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm sure, you know, the $5 million or. Yeah. Well, I mean, he got a payment for it and I'm sure he had his own political allies to yeah. like smooth things over. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So the side note, um, after Robert Maxwell's death, uh, the FBI actually suggested that he may have been a Russian spy like the entire time. Huh. Um, there, there's a lot of interesting stuff in his background i might look into more maybe like do an episode on him and i'm very interested in that because i wonder if that is something that came out of this or something that was happening before this happened i'm not entirely sure um i glanced at his wikipedia page really quickly but i did see like some insinuation that you know his ties with the russian government all the stuff going on there's a lot of like shady stuff in his organization and his empire that he had built so anyways, Nintendo contacted Atari um, and basically told them to stop making Tetris, uh, to which Atari was really confused because they were like, but we we have the, the rights to this. You know, we don't know what you're talking about. But on the back end, they started seeking a patent to publish Tetris um, and then filed a lawsuit against Nintendo over the license deal. Tengen released Tetris on the NAS while this lawsuit was going on. And, you know, there's a big back and forth. I believe the... I don't know if it was in California. Legal battle, though, was like fought in uh, the U.S. So Nintendo even went to Russia and interviewed people that had been part of this, combed over all the contracts, and came back basically at the start of the court battle. And the smoking gun in all of this was the amended contract Belikov had made, citing yeah. what a computer system was. You know, they pointed to that and said, Atari has the rights to only computers. Like, yeah. get, the hell, get the hell out of here. Now, onto the Game Boy like it was, it was customary basically to bundle game systems with a game for the yeah. United States audience. Like it's mm-hmm. still mostly customary and like not as much now, but you know, that was definitely a huge thing back in the day. Yeah. You could get like consoles with just without any games now, but they, mm-hmm. but they do sell them or they have, you know, I couldn't tell you about the current generation, but I know the previous generation, there were different bundles that had that were specifically for like, this is the call of duty bundle. And yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, but in the NES, I like I remember they had the NES games and pinball mm-hmm. along with uh, I think the original Mario. There was a few games because it was like Mario Duck Hunt, which and part of that was to show off the use of the gun, even though it was used for just a handful of games ever. Yeah, yep. I can't remember. Do you remember how the gun worked? What it did was it was it actually kind of like took a picture a low res picture of the screen. So it wasn't something that came out of the gun and into it. Oh, that's right. It was, it came into the gun. The gun was detecting what it saw on the screen, not so- sending something to the screen. Yeah, that's right. And it, it like it blacked, it blacked the CRT, right? And there was only like one white dot. Yeah. Cause I think you could, you could fool the gun too. Um, well, the, duck hunt, it, the ducks were white and everything else was. Oh, was, that's what was it was. Yes. Colors. yes. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing was, I found out, because I was tinkering with mine, that if you removed the lens in the gun, like if you took it out, took out the lens and put it back together, mm-hmm. 
it would bring in a lot more light and it was way easier to uh <laughs> it was a lot less like a sniper rifle and a lot more like a shotgun <laughs> you could also just take a piece of white paper and just point it at it and fire and it would like register all the ducks oh well <laughs> I, I definitely like was getting mm-hmm. really good scores i don't remember if they were perfect scores with the game looking like i was playing it as expected right (laughs) i think that i forgot to put it in the first time Mm. i put it i took it apart and put it back together i don't even remember why i was doing it but i do remember having the 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 thought of man this is a lot easier than than it was the first time right yeah yeah so rogers was the one that came up with the idea to bundle tetris with the game boy and that you know history in the making um you know it just sold made millions for nintendo um yeah. such like an iconic game on a groundbreaking the green boy was kind mm-hmm. of groundbreaking at the time because you would get there were handheld games but they were static led sprite kind of games mm-hmm. having a screen like that so it played a lot like a console was a game changer at the time right. <laughs> game changer game uh i like i remember junior high and the first kids bringing in their game boys it was it was an oh wow moment yeah yeah like um when i think of game boy i think of tetris and i think of pokemon and in fact weird trivia moment here on the most selling uh game consoles where do you think the game boy sits nowadays my gut reaction was that it's at the top not at the top but it is number four Nintendo DS is number two because it was basically just the Game Boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, sure, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. It's just it it that it was around for so long and it was mm-hmm. so accessible. I got the impression that there were a good chunk of people that got a Game Boy that might not even have any other game consoles, and mm-hmm. even still, like in the world of NES versus the original Xbox versus the NES sixty four or Super Nintendo or whatever, or the PlayStation, you might have one of those three mm-hmm. and a Game Boy. It does not shock me at all that, that it was huge because if you counted it as a game in that game system, it's probably the most likely one to be owned with another entry on that list. Exactly. And like you, you touched on a good point too, because Roger's main point when he was presenting this Nintendo was that if you bundle the Game Boy with Mario, it's a game console for like little boys to play. If you bundle it for touch with Tetris, it's a game console for everyone. Yeah. And you know, that's what all the marketing, everything was like, you know, just random people on a plane playing the game boy, stuff like that. Well, also, if you think about the resolution of the screen and the nature of the control systems that they had, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of games that wouldn't, that are similarly addictive in the same kind of a game of game addiction that wouldn't play very well with that control set or mm-hmm. wouldn't have enough resolution to play with just that black and white screen, which the Game Boy originally released with. Like Solitaire, Minesweeper would have all been very difficult to play with those control systems yes. in that situation. I know Bejeweled, Threes, and its derivatives are, are like right in there as those kinds of simple games that can be played repetitively like that and all of those games would not translate very well to that control system i mean i I don't know that they were thinking that but i think that that was part of the win there was that it's so intuitive to play with the controls that they were building into the game boy 
Yeah, exactly. So yeah, after all that was decided, Atari kind of, you know, they lost the rights and everything. Judge ruled against them. Mm-hmm. So they had half of their Tengen versions were already shipped um, uh-huh. out in circulation, which to this day are very valuable uh-huh. um, because they basically destroyed all the other copies and that were in the warehouse. So if you have a Tengen Atari uh, Tetris, I think it might be valued at like, I think like $4,000 maybe nowadays. Wow. And so everyone involved in this entire story made money from this game. Except other than the, the creator. Who, yes. Yeah. Hank Rogers, though, was determined to help Pajanov, you know, because they were good friends at this point. Mm-hmm. And he helped yeah. him emigrate to Seattle and start his own company and, you know, worked with him in the company called the Tetris Company. And finally, through all of this, in 97, Pajanov was able to finally receive royalties for his game, which amounted to, I think it was like $2.7 million or something like that. It sounds like it worked out pretty decently for him. <laughs> yep. At least okay. I mean, yeah. yes, it was it was over several years. So if you think about it, it's more like six figures a year mm. over the course of dealing with all of this. But still, yeah. Yeah, pretty yeah. solid. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Gerasimov, um, he's now an engineer at Google. Um, he got a degree from MIT. Awesome. You know, immigrated from Russia. Mm-hmm. Vladimir uh, Pochikov, he was the psychologist that I mentioned earlier. Um, mm-hmm. In 1998, he supposedly killed his wife and son and took his own life um, in a murder-suicide. And I say supposedly because there is a theory that the Russian mob um, was somehow connected with everything that went on. I mean, that's not completely ridiculous. It's not. In fact, there is a Netflix show called The Tetris Murders uh, that I haven't watched yet, but I'm going to watch through it and do do some more research. And there might be another episode that we maybe talk about. It, yes. Now, instead of, it was like, I want to watch it. No, it's research. Really? So, really, mm-hmm. honey? We have to watch this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, how, it's how you're negotiating control of the remote. Mm-hmm. Robert Maxwell, uh, his naked body was found floating in the Atlantic Ocean in 91. Um, it was ruled there to be a heart attack and drowning. Um, and after his death, his entire empire just basically crumbled. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not crazy, especially when you're dealing with intellectual property and everything that the guy who was putting everything to, in motion... Mm-hmm. When he's not there, it falls apart. It, it, it's not every time, but it happens pretty often from the things that I have read and my occasional personal experience uh, yeah. hearing about stuff. Yeah. And then uh, Belikov, uh, he ran Elorg uh, even as a private company after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Okay. Yeah. And there were like some other key players in this that I didn't really go into because it was more kind of like nitty gritty licensing and stuff like that. Um Game Historian has a YouTube video on this where he goes into even more detail. Um, and there's a handful of articles and everything uh, that you can, you know, find pretty I mean, just the Wikipedia article on Passionoff um, is a good source. I mentioned, I was out with my wife and we were having uh, dinner with friends right before this recording. And I mentioned this was going to be what we were going to be talking about. And my friend's wife was saying, well, now the music is going through my head. And you were ju- you said earlier that when they first brought it into the Nintendo Famicom office, it didn't have any music, yet everybody mm. was addicted. Mm. Do you know when they added the music? Because the music, if you're of a certain age, is iconic and stuck in your head right now. <laughs> yes. Um, and I'm almost positive everyone's remembering uh, Tetris Track B. That is the, the main one. I don't know... Uh, wasn't it like a Russian folk song or something like that? The true name of the Tetris theme is uh, Kora Biniki. 
the Russian word for peddlers. And it was initially created as a poem by uh, Nikolai uh, Nekrasov in 1861. And upon reading the poem, you know, you only need to like feel a building and tempo and signature style and everything like that. In 89, uh, Hirokazu Tanaka remade this this song for the Nintendo Game Boy version of Tetris. Uh, From there, the Type A theme finally cemented itself as one of the most recognizable tracks in the gaming history. But from the sounds like of it, it was for the Game Boy that they added the music. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the the most recognizable uh, Uh, version. Well, that's that's the only track that's important. (laughs) Yes, yes. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I thought I thought this was pretty interesting, you know, because of the the Cold War uh, side of things, but also just like the the craziness of the licensing, especially like in our field, licensing can be just a huge headache when it comes to um, oh yeah, like using any piece of software. Like nowadays, it is cheaper now to purchase a physical server and slam Windows Server on it than it is to license Windows Server for a VM because they base it around every cpu core possible that you could give the system honestly that's one of the reasons why linux um became the favorite platform when things became more and more virtual machine like and in the cloud is that you just didn't have to think about licensing yeah though like so nowadays like red hat is going down that route of like their licensing per core a lot of organizations like nasa that i work for they are pushing that every os has to be licensed um, including Ubuntu, because you can get an Ubuntu license because it has to be capable of getting the FIPS 142, you know, repos and packages. And you know, part of that too is management loves to have a fall guy. Yeah. And so they they want you licensed so you have support. And like I've tried to tell them, like I have contacted Red Hat support multiple times in my career. Yeah. I've never talked gotten... about this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. It's like, it's like, yeah. We don't have to rehash the the how often support is actually helpful. Mm-hmm. There is something to be said. I mean, if we're going to go down this a little bit, I know that I'm dealing with a lot of stuff talking about like an infrastructure about providing containers securely, which right. is actually a much more complicated thing than I expected going into it. Mm-hmm. One of the good places to start for us was uh, Red Hat has a minimal container image that they provide. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of work that the Department of Defense has done around that using a system called Iron Bank. Mm. And it makes creating your starting point a lot easier if you just adopt the stuff that's already been done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I have my issues with the Iron Bank images uh, because they're so locked down that it's that you can't develop on them. Mm. Like, you basically have to do take the minimal image, do your development, and then apply the controls for Iron Bank on top of it rather than taking the iron bank image and then developing on top of it Mm -hmm. or at least that's kind of where we're at but having a consistent package base being provided certain images and 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 pre-builds is there's value to that even yeah i'm a debian guy and doing this kind of rapid system development hasn't been traditionally as easy for me on debian because Mm -hmm. um like the kickstart mechanism that red hat has always had doing that in Debian is more complicated. Right. It's not kind of built in, it's strapped on top of the system rather than maintained as part of the distro infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. So like, and like their satellite system and Canonical's system, they have their issues, but it's part of the distro infrastructure. It's hard to just do that when nobody's making money on the distro. 
Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Sorry, I just had an idea for an episode. Ooh, okay. Find out about new episodes at r slash hacking the Gibson on Reddit and support the podcast by contributing at the Wikimedia Foundation or Electronic Frontier Foundation.